Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not revive. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Thanks, Rose. Now before we start, let's pray. Dear Lord, your word should be lodged in our hearts. Your psalms are a cry from the human heart and and so they are something we can deeply identify with. Help us to hide today's word, Psalm 1, in our hearts so that our lives may be transformed. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now we're starting a new sermon series today running through to Easter, we're looking at a psalm each week or so. Psalms are, of course, poetry. In fact, the book of Psalms is easily qualifies as the most popular book of poetry in history. Not only is it included in every copy of the complete Bible, which is, of course, the most popular book in history, but it's included in many shorter versions, like the Gideon's New Testament. The language of Psalms is a part of our culture, with phrases like the shadow of death, and metaphors like water and sheep and nature abounding in our, in our language. But poetry has meaning, and the Psalms can be divided into a variety of genres, which you can see here. That's not a brain. That's a collection of the Psalms. Um, <clears throat> psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. It speaks of God's wisdom and gives us insight into how to share in it. In fact, Psalm 1 is even more specific, more special than that. It's one of three psalms that are Torah psalms. Songs that reflect on God's instructions, His word which is what the Hebrew word Torah means. The other two Torah psalms are Psalm 19 and 119. The size indicates how big the psalm is. Psalm 119 is the biggest. So it's easy to remember the Torah psalms, 119-119. But Psalm 1 is special in another way. Along with Psalm 2 which was originally joined to Psalm 1, uh, these potent poems form an introduction and an overview of the entire book of Psalms. Psalm 1 introduces the vitality of our relationship with God and how our response to God's word places us either in his family or outside it. This theme runs through not only the whole book of Psalms, but the entire Bible. 
Now, I could go on and on about the extraordinary skill and deep theology of this psalm, but the subtitle of this sermon series is Songs from the Heart. So it's important to think about how the psalm impacts us, what impressions it makes on us, how it moves us. So, what moves you about Psalm 1? What images jumped out? What, what messages resonate? What themes encourage or frighten you? Being swept away. Being swept away? By what? Yep, yep. So the last section, yeah, the chaff being, being burnt up. It's a pretty vivid image. Yep, the strength of the tree planted by the water. Versus the, the tree in drought, which is away from the water. Yep. So it makes me think about who's got the healthy roots and who's got the rotten roots. Yep, the contrast between having access to water and the strength that gives and the, and the devastation of, of dryness, of no water. Yep. I'll just put this psalm up here so that you're not exercising your memory <laughs> so, so much. Isn't that so true up the top there in verse 1? You know, when I've got a decision to make, if I've got some good counsel, some people I can go to to say, you know, this is happening, you know, pray with me on this. Yep. And in contrast, walking in the counsel of yeah, the wicked exactly. is not such a good thing. <clears throat> Any anything jump out to others? Any images or phrases or Jesus said he's like the streams of living water. Yep. Yeah. You've got to keep your focus on that living water. Yep, that's right. The the image of water is something that's that resonates with us as Christians because Jesus is living water, everlasting water. Mm. Five being very similar to the building the house on the sand. Yep. Yep, the wicked won't stand just like a, a house on sand. Yep. Okay. For me, the, the image that always comes to my mind when I think of this psalm is that central image of a tree planted by a watercourse. Um, for Gold Coasters, though, I imagine this image is not really that potent because look at this. Look at this aerial photo. That's, that's our house there. Um, <clears throat> and you can see what the countryside used to look like before they built these houses and this lake. That is original forest, and over there behind Marymount, that's what the countryside used to look like before, before the estates. Lots of green trees, 
Why? Because there's water everywhere. The Gold Coast is a wet place. But look at this aerial view. Notice how there's no forest here. (laughs) Instead, trees are clustered only in certain places. One place the trees are clustered are around houses like that one, which just happens to be the house that I lived in from age 8 to 17 and where my parents live now. (laughs) The reason houses have trees around them is because the people who live there plant and water the trees. But there are other places that trees grow along these branching paths. What do you think those paths are? Creeks. That's right, they're creeks. Most of the time these creeks are dry, or they look dry, with nothing but sand in their beds. But underneath that sand, and this is in a wet season, so there is actually water here, underneath the sand there's water all year round. And the trees growing along the creek bed are always green. This is actually just down from that house that you saw. The contrast I saw growing up between the plants along the creek and those elsewhere was huge. As a teenager, I'd walk through this creek on the way to bring the cows home every day. And I imagined it as an alien world. It was just so different from the rest of the countryside. And that difference is the contrast is key to the contrast between the righteous person and the wicked person. So let's dig into how the Psalms talks about that. Someone has three sections. How to achieve happiness, an image of what that looks like, and the end result of that behavior. So how do you achieve happiness? According to the psalmist, it involves two things. Avoiding sin and obsessing over the Torah. Most commentaries will warn you that the three parallel lines warning against associating with evil are not intended as a progression. (coughs) The reason they warn against that is because there clearly is a progression from walking in the counsel of the wicked through standing in the way of sinners to sitting in the seat of scoffers. There is a progression from casually joining evil on a jaunt down the road to sitting down and dwelling with evil. But the important point, which is why they warn you not to get obsessed about a progression, is that the threefold repetition is intended to emphasise the message, don't join bad people in their wickedness. Your parents probably told you this when you were a kid. It's hardly the rocket science of life advice. You might wonder then about Jesus who, who ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. The difference, of course, is that Jesus didn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. I'm sure he was counseling the wicked against their wickedness. Nor did he stand in the way of sinners, as in root himself in the same path as a sinner. 
I'm sure he stood beside them without joining them in their path. And nor did he sit in the seat of scoffers. Jesus always honoured his father and scoffers would have earned a quick rebuke from him. You see, this first section is not warning us against hanging out with sinners. It's warning us against joining them in their sin. There's a big difference. One of the major problems that Jesus had with the Pharisees is that they rejected sinners rather than their sin. So what should we do instead? Well, instead we should delight in God's Torah. As I mentioned, Torah means instructions or directions. It includes the law, but it's not limited to that. In this in the context of Psalm 1, it's actually referring to the whole of God's, uh, the Old Testament that existed at the time, and even what was yet to come, I think. For us as Christians, perhaps the best word that, that captures the meaning is the Word of God. We delight in God's Word when we understand what it means for us. Uh, The next two sections of the psalm unpack this, but it's important to remember that we should not be grudgingly reading our Bibles. It should be a delight to pick them up and to see the wonderful wisdom that leads to a world so much better than the one that we live in. In fact, so obsessed with God's word should we be that we will mutter and murmur it 24-7. That word meditate actually means to murmur aloud and to ponder and think upon something. God's words should so fill our minds and our hearts that it spills out of our lips. What would Jesus do here? What does the Bible say about this? How can I represent Christ here? There's no shame in constantly muttering such questions. Rather, there is happiness. As long as you don't get taken away. (coughs) Now moving to the second section of the psalm, we're shown a potent image of what this contrast between the righteous and the wicked looks like. The righteous is connected to the living water of the word of God. And so, like the tree planted by streams of water, they are fruitful and prosperous. A person filled with God's word is is never anxious. So the psychological frailties of our culture, (laughs) they don't trouble them. Jesus said, So don't worry about these things, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Now in contrast, the wicked consumed with consumables and concern for themselves rather than for God and others are lightweights. They're like chaff. 
the rubbish that's blown away from the threshing floor, leaving behind the good grain. Selfish, self-centered people just don't last. They can't. Without God's wisdom, they have nothing to offer anyone but empty platitudes and error. In our culture, beware of the cult of the expert. Certainly in our society, secular projects such as the hard sciences of physics and chemistry and biology have yielded many fruitful things, fruitful truths even. But mixed in with this are many falsehoods grounded on arrogant human superstition. And many other fields of human endeavour are rife with falsehood. Our consumer society, for example, idolises material wealth and in the process destroys both the natural environment and the souls of people who buy into it. When we go shopping, whether it's online or in the mall, it's worth muttering as we shop, how does the Bible teach me to spend my money? So we don't end up blown away like a tumbleweed when our finances take a turn for the worse. Jobkeeper may be keeping the economy propped up, but it has to end. And what then? I don't think JobKeeper's the answer to all our problems. Don't tell Scott. (laughs) Which brings us to the last section of the psalm, which addresses that end. In the end, in the judgment, the wicked won't be able to stand. They have no backbone, no integrity. They've, they've been inflated by material goods and empty compliments. And when those run out, there's nothing of substance left. They don't even have relationships to, to lean on. They were too busy serving themselves. And so they don't belong in the assembly, the congregation of God's people. By the way, that word... Assembly or congregation should remind you of the New Testament word for church, which is ecclesia, which also means assembly. The wicked have no place in God's church because they never really connected to God or even to other people. So how should this psalm affect the way that we live? Think about how Jesus ranked God's word to us, God's commandments, God's law. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and it summarizes the whole law. A second is equally important love your neighbor as yourself. Far too often our relationships are relationships of convenience, not of love. How can you tell? Simple. If you abandon a relationship because it's too painful for you, it's not built on love. Because, Paul wrote, If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
If I had the gift of prophecy and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't have love, if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love Love will last forever. The only way we can live out that sort of love, the sort of love that leads to life, that God requires of us, is to be deeply connected into the living water of God's word. We need to be obsessing about who God is, how he relates to us and how he wants us to relate to one another. We can't do that if we spend most of our time obsessing about it, work or our next meal or our favourite TV show or book or our studies or even how to grow our church. We need to delight ourselves in the word of God, in Jesus Christ, the only man who lived a sinless life the man who gives us everlasting water, the man who will look at us on the day of judgment and tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So, For now, we live in faithful love, sacrificing ourselves for the benefit of others and looking forward to standing tall in the midst of God's people. Let's pray. Lord, you clearly teach us that there are only two paths to choose, the path of rebellion of selfishness, of loneliness, and the path of obedience, of perseverance, of life. Help us to always choose the path of life. Help us to be making that choice 24-7, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. In Jesus' name. Amen.